0: lessons that you have to teach your children i had to teach my children a lesson yesterday morning Uh, yesterday morning you know it's saturday morning an opportunity to get some rest and relaxation and they are crazy hyper in the house and so i told them get your shoes on get on some athletic shorts get on a t-shirt we're going across the street and you're running hills and so we just started running hills I timed some 40s, you know? See how fast they could run a 40-yard dash. Uh, They came back to the house not as hyper as they were before we started. There are all sorts of lessons that you have to teach your children when you're a parent, especially in the summertime. You go outside, don't leave the door open. The air conditioner is not free, right? Close close the door. Somebody said amen to that, amen. And then, you know, uh, in the summer, You get an ice cream cone, you better hurry up, because it's not going to last very long. It's going to melt all over the floor. You won't keep it forever. You've got to teach these lessons to your kids, general lessons that don't involve the summer, like don't pick your nose. Some of you need that lesson learned. Um, When you drop food or ice on the kitchen floor, always kick it under the fridge. I'll never... Sorry about that. (laughs) Uh... Throw it away. I mean, cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze. That's an important one. We've learned that over the last couple of years. Something we've got to teach our children: cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze. I have a a, a little confession to make. Last Sunday, uh, Pastor Chris was up here preaching, and I I was sitting back right right back in there in the first service uh, for the sermon, listening. But I, I really wasn't listening. Um, there was a family in front of us that was sitting there, and. And uh, the mother of that family had like a two-year-old sitting on her lap but facing backwards. So he and I, we, we were locked eyes. And so we were making faces at each other. Uh, sorry, Chris. We were making faces at each other the whole the whole sermon. And then he paused and he just sneezed right in her face. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> when you are a parent, you endure these things. So we teach our children, I'm sure that child had a lesson after the service. Cover your mouth when you sneeze, or cover your nose, I guess. Um, also, incidentally, we should teach our children pay attention during the sermon, even if the person behind you is making faces at you. Um, but this is, this is the, the lesson that is really, really important. We have to teach our children to look both ways when they cross the street, right? Left, right, left. Make sure you don't get run over. Look both ways when you cross the street. Well, this morning, we're going to turn to the Lord's table. We're going to look at the Lord's Supper together. It's in Luke chapter 22. You can turn in your Bibles there. And as we look at this story together, I want to demonstrate to you um, that the Lord's Supper looks both backwards and forwards. And we would, be, we, would be, we would do well to look both ways. So Luke chapter 22. We're finishing a series today. We began a series at the beginning of the month called At the Table. As we read through the Gospel of Luke, we noticed there are a lot of meal scenes. There are a lot of things that take place where Jesus is eating with people, and Jesus provides at the table. And, and today, we're going to consider one of those moments, the Lord's Supper. That is the seventh meal in Luke's Gospel. You know, it's a fifth Sunday, and so we have the opportunity to observe baptism, but also to participate in the Lord's Supper, and and that's where we're headed this morning. So Luke chapter 22, verse 7, the context for where we're going to be is that Jesus is headed to the cross. He intends to eat the Passover with his apostles one last time, and we're going to begin in verse 7 where we're going to see anticipation of a holy moment. Luke says, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. We see anticipation in verse 7 because Luke seems to heighten what's taking place. At the beginning of chapter 22 in verse 1, he says that the feast of unleavened bread drew near. And now in verse 7, he says that the day had finally come. It's the day of the feast of unleavened bread, the, The day of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, was a feast commanded by God to the people of Israel that recalled the Exodus. When they were in bondage in Egypt, they had to eat unleavened bread in haste because they had to escape Egypt. And so the Lord commanded that they would keep this feast, a week-long feast, generation by generation, that they would remember what God had done for them in Egypt. So they kept this feast, the feast of unleavened bread, leavened bread. And that the timing of that feast coincides with, with the Passover. That's probably one that you've heard before, the, the Passover. The Passover is another feast commanded by God. This feast also points backwards and recalls the Exodus. Uh, the people of Israel were rescued out of Egypt through a series of 10 plagues. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn. And the only way the people of Israel could escape the death of the firstborn was if they followed some very specific rules, they had to kill a, a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost. They had to go inside the house and they would eat this Passover meal. And if they did these things and followed these rules just so the Lord would pass over them and not kill the firstborn located in that house. And so the way, the way it happened was that the Israelites followed the rules that God gave them and the firstborn in all of Egypt died. The Bible says that there wasn't a house In Egypt where someone was not dead and the Egyptians forced out they they pushed out Israel they they said if if you guys don't leave we're all going to be dead so they forced them out they they leave this meal this Passover meal they they escape through the Red Sea the people of Israel are delivered out of bondage And so the book of Exodus and and the law tells the people of Israel, this is how you're going to celebrate the Passover. Here's what you're going to do, and you're going to do it year by year, generation by generation. You're going to continue to celebrate this Passover meal, to commemorate that moment. And you're going to do it so much that your children are going to ask you. They're going to say, why are we doing this? And parents, you are to respond because the Lord delivered our people out of bondage with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So year after year, this feast was celebrated. It was celebrated within the walls of the city of Jerusalem. People from from all over the world, if they could make it, they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. In the first century, scholars say that the population of Jerusalem was probably about 80,000. But for a feast like Passover, it would swell to as many as a quarter million people uh, in the city for this. So you would arrive in Jerusalem and you would bring your unblemished lamb to the priest in the temple where they would sacrifice the lamb for you and then you would bring the meat home for your Passover meal. That's the setting for what's taking place, the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So on that day, Jesus comes to two of his apostles and he gives them instructions for preparing the Passover meal. Look in verses eight through 13. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered this city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus sends two apostles, Peter and John, to go find this place where they're gonna have the Passover. He sends them into the city. I I, I wanna point out to you that it was in the city that this meal had to be be, uh, observed, but Jesus had, had really, he had a good reason to not be in the city. Uh, he was a wanted man in Jerusalem. Uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees wanted him dead, and it was difficult for Jesus to really hide anywhere. Crowds followed Jesus. And yet, his decision is, I'm going to eat that meal in the city. He is a pious Jew. He is following the law. He is following the tradition. But I also want to point out to you that Jesus is not hiding and running. No, he he had every reason to stay out of the city and yet he still chooses to eat this meal in the city. Right under the noses of his enemies, he will run the course laid out for him. He is in control of the situation and he is not afraid of the will of God. So in the city this the the apostles needed to go into the city and what they would find is a man carrying a jar of water. That would have would have stood out to them uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, in the in the first century, men weren't the ones who carried water. So to find a man carrying water would, would be a little unusual. And then also when they did carry water, it wasn't in a jar, it was in, in like a leather bag. And so to find a man carrying water in a jar would have stood out to the apostles. That would have caught their attention. Jesus says, when you find that man, what you do is you follow him to the house that he's going to. When you get to that house, you're you're done with him, but you need to find the master of the house. When you find the master of the house, here's all that you need to say to him, the teacher says. You don't need to tell him your names, you don't need to describe what you're doing, you don't need to say who the teacher is, because the master of the house knows exactly who I am, and all you need to do is say, the teacher says, where's the place that we're supposed to have this meal later on? That's all you've got to say. And Jesus says, when you ask the master of the house, he will show you a large upper room furnished. So if you can imagine the scenario, uh, these homes in Jerusalem, a lot of them had a second floor. And this second floor was often used for guests. Uh, they designed them in such a way that the stairs went outside the house so that guests could stay in that upper room without having to go through the main part of the home and disturb the family that's there. You had people coming in from all, possibly all over the world to celebrate this feast coming into Jerusalem. They needed a place to stay. There were not really hotels as much as there were people who had upper rooms that they were willing to rent out to people. It was a first century Airbnb system. And that's what Jesus says the apostles will find. It's furnished, meaning it had everything that they needed for the meal to take place. And the text tells us in verse 13 that the apostles found it just as Jesus had described. And this could be because Jesus is God and he knows everything and he did something mysterious here and that's certainly a possibility. I think the more likely possibility is that Jesus is in control of the situation and and Jesus has gone ahead and he has prepared. He knows this master of the house. They've had a prior conversation about this and so he's ready when Jesus comes calling. As we continue through the text into verse 14, what we're going to find there is, is more anticipation for the holy moment. The, the text is, is leading us to anticipate what's about to take place. Look in verse 14. It says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Luke in verse 14 is even more anticipating this moment. In 22 verse 1, he says that the the feast of unleavened bread drew near. In verse 7, it says that the day had come. And and then in verse 14, it says that the hour has come. We're zeroing in on this moment. and And when the hour had come, it says that Jesus reclined at table with his apostles, and and Pastor Chris explained the way, last week he explained how they would eat these meals. They would recline on these these couches. They would kind of be laying on their side with their feet away from the table, and they could have uh, easier conversation, and the the table was in the middle. It was kind of this horseshoe shape is the way that they would eat this meal. They reclined at table, and it says that Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him, his apostles. Jesus had many disciples, but he only had 12 apostles. And Jesus had eaten many meals. He had eaten with, with uh, Pharisees. He had eaten with tax collectors and sinners. He had eaten on, on a hillside or in, in a plain outside Bethsaida with thousands of people. He had meals with many people, but, but not this meal. This meal was with the 12, the apostles because this is a holy moment. And Jesus makes this plain in verse 15. It says this, and, and Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In the original language, Jesus's statement here couldn't be more emphatic. Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. I have I have longed for this moment. I've thought about it. I've planned ahead. This is not something that's just kind of happening and, well, the circumstances were such that we would eat this meal together. No, Jesus planned it. He made the other disciples go away. This is a moment that he wanted just for the 12, something that has been on his mind, and he gives us the answer why at the end of verse 15. He says, before I suffer. I wanted to eat this meal with you before I suffer because I'm about to suffer. He had told his disciples over and over and over that he was about to suffer, that he was going to, but now the moment had come. Now it was time. And maybe the disciples, maybe they should have gotten it, but they didn't really get it because what they understood is that the Messiah was gonna come into Jerusalem and he was going to rule and to reign. And they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew it. But then he comes in and says, well, I'm about to suffer. Jesus is going to rule and reign. That is going to happen, but not before he suffers. And so Jesus says, you know, I really, really wanted to eat this meal because I'm about to suffer. This is the last time all 13 of us are going to be in the same room like this together. And I've really been looking forward to this. Imagine the holiness of the moment. It's just these thirteen. They were in it together. They'd been together for for thirteen uh, for three years. These thirteen men had had been together, and they're they're eating this meal. They'd eaten it before. They they'd celebrated the Passover together before, but 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 now Jesus is saying, "This is it, guys. This is it. It's a." holy moment and and luke is anticipating this holy moment but as we continue into the text we're going to see that he not only anticipates this holy moment he anticipates the future look in verse 16 jesus says for i tell you i will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of god And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus says, I I will not celebrate the Passover until the kingdom of God comes. This this is it for me. I I do want to point out to you, just for your own understanding, in verse 17, uh, he mentions a cup. There's another cup that comes, and and the the next cup that's mentioned is the one that we know for the Lord's Supper, but but this cup that's mentioned in verse seventeen is is a different cup. Um, and in the traditional Passover meal for the Jewish people, there were several cups throughout the uh, th- throughout the meal, and and the, it was the job of the host to make sure the meal went according to plan, and every single time another element, another cup was introduced, it was the host's job to explain what was going on to recall the exodus. That's what they would do. So this certainly is one of those cups that Jesus is taking and passing out to the disciples and saying, you know, drink this, this cup. I'm not gonna drink of it again until the kingdom of God comes. So this anticipation of the future and this statement about suffering certainly has the disciples off balance. He's told them, I'm about to suffer. He's told them, I'm not going to eat this meal again, that this is really it. And then what Jesus does is he says something that's familiar to you and me, but, but would have been incredibly astounding to the apostles when they heard him say it. Look in verses 19 and 20. Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So imagine Jesus at this meal. He, it says that he takes the bread and he gives thanks, and he breaks it, and he he gives it to the apostles. This is the exact same language of the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke chapter 9. Luke Luke chapter 9's account of of Jesus feeding 5,000 people points forward to this moment, and Jesus says, this bread, it's my body given for you. What he's saying is this this bread represents my body and my body given for you is is the same as those lambs that are being sacrificed. Every year, lambs at this time were being sacrificed in the temple and, and the way that it worked is an innocent lamb was dying, was shedding its blood in the place of a person who was guilty of sin. And now Jesus says, nope, not anymore. See, this bread is, is like my body. My body is given for you. It's broken and it's given for you. I'm gonna die in your place, not, not that lamb anymore. And he does something similar with the cup. He, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, th- this phrase new covenant points back to the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 31, God tells the people of Israel, he tells them, uh, you know, when you came out of Egypt, when I rescued you out of Egypt in the Exodus, I gave you a covenant, I gave you the law. And when I gave you the law, I said, if you keep this, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will bless you, you are untouchable. But you broke it, like immediately, you broke it. And, And by all accounts, we should be done. Our relationship should be over. You broke the covenant, but, but I'm not done, God says. I'm not done. You see, there's a new covenant that is to come. There's a new covenant that is to come, and it's not like the old covenant that you broke. Now, this, this new covenant can't be broken. That old covenant, uh, I gave it to Moses, and he wrote it on some tablets of stones, and he brought it down the mountain, and then he got mad and broke it and came back up, and I'd give him new ones. Uh, the, that was written in stone. This new covenant is different. I'm not writing it on stone anymore. I'm writing it on the hearts of my people. There's a new covenant that is to come. And on that day, when that new covenant comes, I will dwell with my people. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is what God says in Jeremiah chapter 31. And then the Lord Jesus stands in front of his disciples, and he's got the cup that's supposed to be for the Exodus. And he takes it, and he says, this cup, it's my blood. It represents my blood. And it's the, it's the new covenant. It, it is my blood. Jesus says, my blood that is poured out for you ratifies the covenant, but also it, it makes the covenant happen. What a holy moment for Jesus and his disciples. So holy that for 2,000 years, Christians have celebrated and commemorated this moment with things like what we're gonna do this morning. Bread is broken. The fruit of the vine is served, and, and Jesus is going to be remembered, but but that's not something that we made up. We, we didn't make this up. Jesus gave it to his apostles, and his apostles gave it to us, and we have passed this down generation by generation. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is an example of the apostles telling us exactly what to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in of me, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this, this tradition has been passed down to us. And the Apostle Paul explains to us in those verses, he explains that what we are to do when we come to the Lord's table, what we are to do is to look both ways, backwards and forwards. See, the Lord's Supper points backwards, inviting us to remember. It points backwards to what God has done. So this moment in Luke chapter 22 is a Passover meal. They are celebrating the Passover. So in that moment, they are looking back at the Exodus. And and on this particular day, on, on the day of the Passover, every single Jewish family in the Roman Empire was going to be celebrating the Passover. They were going to be looking back on what God had done. For them, it was 1,500 years prior. 1,500 years ago, they would think in the first century, God delivered our people from Egypt. He opened up the sea, and our people walked through on dry ground. Our God is mighty, our God is strong, and they they would look back on that moment. And we can see how the Passover points backwards to the Exodus. But for us, we're not celebrating the Passover here today. We're actually celebrating what we call the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper does, it does point back to the Exodus, but but not directly. You see, the, the Exodus from Egypt, the people of Israel, that That exodus, what we come to find out, is only a shadow that points forward to the greater exodus of what God has done in Christ. God has delivered his people from bondage again, but it's not bondage from Egypt, it's not bondage from like Babylon or Assyria or Persia or Rome. God has has delivered his people in bondage from a a much worse taskmaster than that. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God has delivered his people from the bondage of sin and death. When Jesus died on the cross, he gave us freedom. He parted the Red Sea again that we could walk through on dry ground. And so when Jesus takes the bread and says, this is my body, and he takes the cup and says, this is my blood, that's not all that unusual to us because we've read it before. We've seen it before. We understand this. But that would have shook those apostles. Because I, I promise you, I promise you that that no Passover meal up to that point, no Passover meal, the host would stand up and do anything but make this meal about anything else but the Exodus. The whole thing is about the Exodus. And then Jesus, as the host of the Passover, stands up and and he doesn't talk about the exodus. He says, this meal's not about that. This meal is about me. The bread is me. The blood is me. No, no other host had done that before, and that would have shook them. It's as if Jesus is saying, no longer will the people of God look back in history and say that, that the exodus is the single greatest thing that God has ever done for his people. Jesus is saying that 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 used to be true, but it's not anymore because when I'm finished, when I'm finished, people are going to look back and say, well, the exodus is just a shadow of the greatest thing that God has ever done to deliver his people at the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ, because just as God delivered his people from Egypt, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, that is King Jesus. And and so the Lord's Supper tells us, it encourages us to look backwards, to look back at the shadow of the exodus and the glory of the cross. Well, the Lord's Supper also points forward, anticipating the return of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul encourages us to look forward, to anticipate the future. Jesus himself anticipated the future when he said, I- I'm not going to eat or drink this Passover meal uh, until the kingdom comes. He anticipated a future day. I am going to eat it again, but not till the kingdom comes. There's a future day. I wanna tell you this morning that all of the meals that we have looked through, all the meals located in Luke's gospel, all of those meals are also shadows. They point to a future day when the fulfillment comes, when the real thing comes. You know, Jesus... Ate with tax collectors and sinners. He ate with disciples. He, he fed the 5,000 on, on a hillside. He communed with his people. He, he dwelled with his people. But those were just shadows pointing forward to a future day. You see, God is in charge of all of human history, past, present, and future. And God's plan for the future is that one day everything that you and I know as reality will one day cease. It's all gonna change in the twinkling of an eye. It's all gonna change one day. And when that day comes, when the Lord Jesus returns, all of the pain and suffering and tears and sin and death, all of those things will stop. They will be done. They will go away. And God will dwell with his people. And God's people will dwell with him. And he will be our God and and we will be his people and we will be together, communing together forever in a new heavens and a new earth. It's all gonna change one day. And and, and one of the ways that the book of Revelation portrays this reality is in the imagery of a feast. One day, the book of Revelation tells us, one day there's gonna be a big feast and all the people of God are gonna be seated around the banquet table. It's not just gonna be the twelve. It's going to be all of the people of God, all of those who have pa- placed our faith in Christ and received the forgiveness of sins unto eternal life. We're going to be seated at this banquet and the host none other than the Lord Jesus. And I wouldn't be surprised if he opened with, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you today. You see, the Lord's Supper calls us to look both ways, to look back at what God has done in the Exodus that's just a shadow of the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper also calls us to look ahead and consider that one day the Lord Jesus will return and when he does, he is bringing the fullness of the kingdom of God with him and on the day when that kingdom comes, the book of Revelation in, in chapter 21 tells us that on that day, when the kingdom comes finally, that from the throne, The Lord God will say, it says in a loud voice. He's not gonna whisper this. In a loud voice, the one seated on the throne will proclaim this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then he says this, behold, I'm making all things new for the former things have passed away. This morning we're about to turn. We're about to turn to the Lord's Supper. And as we do, as we take this Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you, acknowledge that Exodus, the great salvation of God that we see in the book of Exodus and how God delivered his people, consider that it's just a shadow of what God has done in Christ, that we have received the forgiveness of sin, freedom from sin, and freedom from death. And also as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we we want to anticipate the future. And what God intends to do. And when he brings the fullness of the kingdom. And Jesus makes all things new.